Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Nicole Nichols. Nicole is a senior research scientist at Pacific Northwest National Lab. Nicole, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, glad to have you on the show. You recently presented at the NVIDIA GPU Technology Conference, or GTC, on machine learning for security and security for machine learning. So everything machine learning and security. Uh, and so we'll dive into that topic. But before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and learn how you came to get involved at the intersection of these two fields. Yes, that's um, an interesting path. So I am a senior research scientist here at PNNL, and I did my PhD in electrical engineering at the University of Washington. And when I was there, I was using... Um, human speech technologies as applied to marine mammal detection and classification algorithms. And so I started in kind of data science and machine learning uh, in a multidisciplinary way. Uh, Previous to that. Can I hit a pause on that? Is this like uh, trying to interpret what dolphins are saying? (laughs) That is the most common question I got. Almost. (laughs) Yes. Um, So what we were doing was trying to detect if they were present in an area and then classify to species. Um, or And actually, we also tried to look at recognition of individuals as well. Okay. Um, so we're basically using the same, um, the same technologies that people use to uh, human speech technology, but applying them to marine mammal vocalizations. Got it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's all good. That's all good. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I did for uh, my PhD work. Um, but prior to that, I used to work in autonomous underwater vehicles. I was a mechanical engineer, so my bachelor's is in mechanical engineering. And so I kind of have taken a course through uh, different engineering disciplines, um, all kind of focused on trying to understand the intersections of uh, technology and domain sciences. And um, in through those experiences, what I was most interested in was uh, signal processing and signal analysis, and that's kind of morphed into machine learning. And so uh, at the lab, uh, I've worked on a couple of different projects kind of around those themes as well, and they've kind of started to uh, coalesce around this notion of security and machine learning, which uh, we can get into more. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe a good place to start is with the types of security use cases. I mean, that security is a pretty broad topic, means a lot, a lot of things. Um, you know, when you're talking about security, what are the kinds of problems you're looking at? At the lab, uh, I've been focused on two different applications that I was presenting last week. And the first was looking at uh, different types of uh, cyber data sets. Uh, one was insider threat detection and one was a network capture and trying to apply natural language processing techniques uh, and language modeling to interpreting and understanding um, those sorts of data. And so in those cases, insider threat is oftentimes the exfiltration of information, whether that's IP or financial or other sorts of information. And so trying to understand early indicators um, to help an analyst understand if that's something that could be happening in their network. And so that also relates to the notion of intrusion detection, um, because you're oftentimes working with similar sorts of cyber logs. So the insider threat detection can start to incorporate um, other more indirect uh, data that's uh, 
assessed. A lot of the insu uh, the intrusion detection is looking specifically at NetFlow and PCAP data, um, but insider threat can incorporate other information such as uh, email that's uh, within the uh, corporate network um, and looking to see um, if there are behavior changes or people assuming different roles in the network that maybe they shouldn't. So trying to act as a system administrator when they shouldn't. Um, so in that case, we were trying to use uh, recurrent neural networks um, and LSTMs to try and see if we can build uh, in a language model framework, uh, a system that could incorporate streaming data and provide uh, alerts to an analyst um, in a fashion that uh, could provide these early indicators. That's the first of the two use cases. Yep. Got it. The next one? The second use case uh, we were looking at was uh, software fuzz testing. Uh, so in this case, uh, if you're trying to assess software for vulnerabilities, um, you need to be able to explore all the code paths that this uh, program can take. And there are traditional uh, programs that do this uh, that have historically used different types of genetic algorithms uh, that will take a random byte string, input it into the program, and then uh, it will document uh, the code path that it takes. And if it's unique, it will save that byte string. And so uh, you can then kind of basically get this uh, kind of map of um, different random byte strings that triggered different paths through your code. And it allows you to see if the code uh, failed. And so that's um, uh, an early indicator into understanding where there could be bugs in your software that you should eliminate for security reasons. And so, uh, it's a very labor-intensive process because you're effectively using a random number generator to say, well, how many different code paths can I explore? And so we used uh, the seed paths that were discovered by these traditional methods, and we use that as training data, again, for uh, two different types of machine learning models. We're using uh, GANs and LSTMs, and then running those as generative models to initiate new seed paths that we then reinitialized that traditional uh, analysis program with in order to accelerate the speed up of finding unique and longer code paths. Okay. Wow. That sounds like, uh, sounds like either one of those could have been a much longer presentation than what you gave at GTC. <laughs> yes. Well, so the reason I picked it this way is because I feel like there's, there's, there's a lot of really interesting applications for machine learning in security. Mm -hmm. And, uh, people are trying to understand, uh, malware, insider threat, uh, uh intrusion detection, um, uh, this can sometimes cross into physical security in terms of, you know, understanding, you know, if you, you know, we're, we're part of the Department of Energy, we look at power grids, we want to ensure there's resilience in the grid. Um, so we're trying to assess, you know, uh, if there are um, security concerns in there. So there's, there's a lot of different areas where you you can use machine learning to automate uh, the evaluation of a network health, whether that's a utility grid, whether that's uh, you know a traditional computer network, as you can think of, uh, this malware application or this software evaluation. Um, and there's a lot of different ways where we can use different techniques to automate some of that. But in all of these scenarios, um, you're... The, the activity that you're trying to find uh, is also typically trying to be hidden. And so in order to and be as hidden as they can, um, they are able to use any flaw that they can find. And if that's in the machine learning, uh, we have to assume that that's a possibility. And so there's this whole other branch of machine learning that's uh, growing in uh, um, uh, popularity assessment, I don't know, uh, interest, uh, that is these small perturbations that can cause unintended classification. So 
the typical examples are the um, there's the turtle rifle paper where people 3D printed a turtle and then it gets misclassified as a rifle. That's an example where people were um, using uh, different adversarial example generation techniques in the physical world to create things that cause a specific misclassification. And so when we think about not just machine learning for security, although I think that's where it's perhaps most important, um, you have to understand that these models need to be robust in any environment. And in some environments, particularly security environments, um, there may be things working against you. So it's of utmost importance to ensure that there is safety and security in the models that you're deploying. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's a unique intersection between the security of machine learning and machine learning for security. I think that any systems that are going to be used in the real world, whether that's object recognition um, or you know, speech recognition, you know, we wanna make sure that those systems are working as we planned. And so uh, these adversarial examples, you know, they generate them and they can show them against different uh, systems, whether that's audio or video or um, object recognition and static images. Um, and there's interesting toy test cases that are uh, being shown. Um, but I think that they're, like I said, of utmost importance when they are being used for different security applications. Uh, and so you mentioned a couple of things there. Uh, one of the critiques of this whole line of inquiry around adversarial attacks is that these use cases are kind of toy use cases. Mm -hmm. uh, is the kind of importance you're placing on this space uh, based on having seen kind of actual you know, threats in the wild against these kinds of models? Or is it more... Uh, theoretical for lack of a, a no term. i mean so we're working from a basic research perspective and just trying to understand the safety and security of algorithms that are being deployed and so this is really more of trying to understand how to make models robust in um in environments where they could be being used in some sense it's just an assessment of the open literature and trying to see uh it's, it's hard to keep up with archive, but there's just a growing number of papers in all of deep learning and machine learning. Um, but under this notion of adversarial machine learning, there is a, a kind of a significant explosion of different examples that where people are creating um, new and different types of examples. And following the examples that are being created, I think a lot of this is being driven in the autonomous car industry, which is one of the reasons why I was wanting to speak about this at the NVIDIA conference, because NVIDIA is because of the uh, capabilities that they are enabling, uh, they're obviously one of the people who are trying to um, further the self-driving car industry through the products that they're developing. And so there's kind of uh, an agglomeration of many of the different autonomous car companies there. So when people are thinking about where this may actually be occurring in the real world, you know, we can show these toy examples where we manipulate a few pixels, um, but where that comes to real life is most often demonstrated as an autonomous car system. Um, so there's a lot of work that shows that you can put uh, different shapes of graffiti onto stop signs and they'll be misclassified uh, to other types of signs, whether it's a yield or something else. And so because we, we as a society want uh, inherent safety in these sorts of vehicles, I think this is an area where uh, the adversarial machine learning community is starting to focus and understand where this could be real. Um, but I, and I believe Goodfellow said this as well, that he has not seen any um, examples of uh, true attacks in the, in the wild. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is more a notion of basic understanding to 
provide robustness in the systems that we want to deploy. Uh, so in the case of the first of the use cases that you described, you were talking about this insider threat detection. And, you know, I usually think of that as based on kind of low level packet capture of what's happening in the network. Uh, but the example that uh, and the technologies that you talked about applying here were, you know, language models and RNNs and our LSTMs. Uh, can you kind of walk us through the the scenario there and what you're mm-hmm. trying to do? Yeah. So we did some initial research that was looking at a data set that's uh, from the CERT Institute. And so uh, it's a publicly available data set and they have um, a synthetic data generation that's meant to model um, communications within a company. And so they have a set of uh, fake user IDs and they have uh, information about the email traffic. uh, And it says uh, how many emails different individuals sent to other emails within the company, if there are attachments, what computers they were logging into, the timestamps of when they were logging into things. And there was a program by DARPA, the DARPA Adams program, and they had similar data uh, to this, but we didn't have access to that. Uh, CERT data was what was the public data set. And so in that, they were using uh, isolation forest models, and that was some of the best performing models. So we had as a baseline uh, that isolation forest model. But we... um we first developed aggregate statistics uh, that are basically taking counts of uh, the actions that individuals are taking um, and putting that into a feature vector that we then fed into um, uh, our LSTM model. And then we're basically using it as an autoencoder in order to understand, uh, is this an event type that we expected or didn't expect? And so then we would produce um, an anomaly score per, uh, per log line that we had in these records. And so... The challenge with that approach is that that feature set gets very brittle when you try and expand or deploy in different environments. And so we wanted to take what was being done in deep learning for language modeling and see if we could apply uh, character encoding to these uh, types of strings so that you um, had more flexibility in the types of features that you could capture. And basically, again, like a lot of deep learning, leverage uh, the network to learn the patterns that you wanted to identify rather than the hand-engineered features. You mentioned that one of the challenges with the kind of traditional approach is that the feature encodings get brittle. Can you elaborate on that? What what, what causes them to get brittle for this use case? Um, so in this case, if you have different types of data being collected. So say you have company A and company B and uh, one company is collecting email information and they have a certain set of roles. And so maybe it's an IT company. And so they have uh, system administrators, they have developers, they have test engineers, uh, they have some admin support, they have some managers. And so you have these kind of categories. And when you're learning this model, those categories are kind of hard encoded in some of that um, when you're building your model. And so then if you go to learn company B, you have a different set of uh, roles that are then uh, included. And so you kind of need to rebuild your model uh, a little bit more explicitly than when you are working with the character encodings. And so when you started working with the character encodings, the data that you are running through the the character encoder is the actual kind of the emails and things like that that are in this data was it the actual was it all metadata or was it emails themselves that were in this data set 
So the CERT data set was a synthetic data set. And so we discarded the information within the actual emails because, as I recall, it was uh, random scrapes from Wikipedia pages. And so there wasn't actually a useful information content that we could uh, leverage into the model. So we that's why we were mainly relying on features of number of emails sent and who they were sent to, because those are the parts that they were modeling more directly. Well, so we weren't really able to take advantage of any content within in the email. So you are applying this language model type of approach to the, the metadata itself in this mm-hmm. essentially like a graph of email communication. What kind of encoding did you settle on for that? Or what exactly were you running through the language model? So in that case, as I recall, we had we were basically replaying day's events. Uh, and so um, we had a log of... Um, this one, I think we were actually using the aggregate feature. So it was per day. It wasn't an instantaneous feature. Uh, and so per day, um, we had the different actions that were associated to specific users. So you still did that aggregate feature generation, but instead of using those kind of as explicit features to some traditional model, you then mm-hmm. encoded those using the, the language model and then sent that into a, an RNN? Or yes. now the RNN is the RNN is creating the language model. That's not what mm-hmm. you're using for the classification, is it? The RNN uh, we were using to generate the anomaly score. Um, okay. I believe that we were projecting this um, into a word embedding before we were running this in. I'm <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. Um, so one of the challenges is we were actually working with two data sets. Um, so we initially worked with the CERT data set, but then we also switched to working with uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory data set, um, which is totally a different format. And we did a little bit more of the character encoding work around the um, the Los Alamos National Lab data set. So in that case, we were looking at authentication logs, which had a totally different format. So in that case, uh, we had um, we had uh, specific log lines that were being fed in again per user, but it would say uh, source source and destination IP and the user and if the logon was successful or not. And so the reason we switched to this was that this was an actual network capture event. and so it was uh, more realistic than the CERT data set. Um, and we had uh, labeled red team activity in this. Um, and so we still had some ground truth. Uh, one of the challenges in working with uh, security applications and machine learning is it's very, very, very hard to find any source of public data set and specifically something that has any labels for validation of what you're finding. Um, and so uh, the LANL data set is one of the best that we had seen because it is both realistic because it was from a network capture event. They obfuscate the true IPs and users, um, but otherwise uh, it's a true model of what was being recorded uh, over a two-month period. And, but it still also had uh, red team events labeled. Um, and so uh, we were uh, comparing uh, some of the aggregate feature approaches um, that we had done in a CERT data set analysis and reusing that approach with the LANL data set, but we focused more on the the LANL data set when we were using the character encoding. Okay. So in that case, the language model is a little bit more specific because there you have a sentence. Basically, each log is a sentence. Mm -hmm. And so then you have this tokenization of 
uh, you can either do the word uh, tokenization or the character uh, tokenization. And um, then you're just basing uh, the prediction of seeing this token given the history of prior tokens or future tokens within a log line. And so how, did, how does that model get you to uh, uh, an anomaly score? Um, so in that case, and this is, again, very analogous to the language modeling is you're estimating the probability of seeing a particular token in that sequence. Um, and so uh, you are taking the conditional probability of seeing that token given the, the token seen earlier in the sequence. And so we also compared uh, both forward um, RNNs and bidirectional RNNs. And so in that case, you're also conditioning the probability of seeing that token given the future tokens in that sequence within the log line. Um, and is one and of so, the tokens just the the label essentially, and so you're able to predict whether you're are going to see the. It's not the label. Um, so it's uh, you have a vocabulary uh, that is the elements that you see within those fields, and so this is one of the reasons why the character encoding is more flexible um, because you have. Uh, a more specific set of known vocabulary when you are working in the word encode, word tokenization system. Um, if you have new PCs that come on to the system or new users that come into the system, they're previously unseen. And so uh, that might not be in your vocabulary yet. So you use an out of vocabulary token to encode that. And those were relatively small portions of it, but that's how, that's how we were handling those unknown tokens. So the anomaly score is the probability of seeing that full sequence. And so it's the aggregation of the probability of, the, of seeing the individual sequence of tokens conditioned on the prior uh, tokens. I guess I'm trying to connect the anomaly score to the explicit label that you're given in the data set. Right, right. So it comes down to being a detection problem. Mm -hmm. And so we were evaluating uh, with ROC curves. And so what we say is um, this this log line uh, had an anomaly score, uh, which was basically um, a relative number based on how much it deviated from other things that it had seen before. And then this was the other challenge in that is you then set a threshold to say, uh, if an anomaly score is over you know, 70 or whatever the arbitrary number is, and it, uh, then we would mark it as a detection of a red team event. So obviously we're kind of in that frustrating game of trying to figure out where thresholds are. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, uh, in cyber work, oftentimes you are still relying on a human analyst to understand, is this something that is concerning or not? Because oftentimes, just because something anomalous doesn't mean that it's actually um, a true event of concern. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we generate these models and we uh, produce this anomaly score but we also need to ensure that we're not producing so many anomaly scores that we overwhelm uh, the analysts because there's only so many that they can truly investigate. And so when we set that threshold, we basically were trying to take a number that an analyst could reasonably process within a day. And I, uh, I'd need to look back at the specifics, but I think it was maybe 50 uh, per day. Um, and so we can then uh, evaluate our ability to detect those red team events based on uh, if uh, those labeled events were in that uh, portion above the threshold. Uh, I guess one question I've got is just you, you tried several 
different algorithms here. It sounds like RNNs, uh, forward and bidirectional, maybe LSTMs, maybe some word embedding stuff. What kind of observations were you able to make uh, comparing these different approaches? So we're comparing word tokenization, character tokenization. We're looking at um, forward and bidirectional recurrent neural networks. We also had a tiered architecture trying to provide context across log lines. Um, And we also added an attention mechanism to try and provide interpretability to an analyst. And so one of the key conclusions that we saw was that when we added... um, the attention mechanism, that we didn't see a significant decrease in performance relative to um, the simple RNNs or bidirectional RNNs. And so for us, that was a win because we could say we can add this interpretability to an analyst so they understand where the model was focusing attention in the sequence of tokens when it decided this was an anomalous logline and not take a hit in terms of um, detection accuracy. Okay. Um, the other thing that we saw was that uh, the character uh, tokenization um, outperformed the word tokenization. Uh, and it sounds like this is not something that you've tried uh, kind of on real data, whether at PNNL or DOE, or is based on this is kind of research based on uh, publicly or at, yes. at least data sets you had access to. Yes, we've only worked on uh, publicly available data for evaluation of this. So that's the insider threat detection use case. The other one was the software fuzz testing. Um, yes. And that one, you you know, sounds like you used some similar, uh, you know, LSTMs, but also did, did some work with GANs. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about the uh, kind of the, the GAN work that you did and, and mm-hmm. what you observed there. So... For the GANs, uh, you know, as you may be familiar, uh, you train a classifier to recognize if this is the real data or if this is the synthetic data uh, that you've been generating yourself. And so in this case, uh, we have the specific seed files that were produced by um, the, so we're, we're testing against a program called AFL for American Fuzzy Lop. That's the program that's uh, this fuzz tester framework that we're using. And so, um, we had uh, those two um, sources, and so we were training the GAN to discriminate between the two. A source in this case is one of these seed, these random seeds, as opposed to mm-hmm. the. Uh, that's what yeah. the, the the GAN is being trained to to identify. Yeah, and so these seed files are random byte strings. So we did compare against, you know, also just producing random byte strings, um, because for us the test was. When we reinitialize uh, AFL, which is the the standard testing framework, with these augmented seed files, would it find more code paths faster? And were those code paths longer? Um, And so uh, when we were using both of those frameworks, um, we found that it did both find longer uh, code paths, and it found them faster than when it was augmented with uh, truly random um, additional byte strings. I'm assuming AFL is like there's some kind of static program and maybe you can talk a little bit about its complexity, but I'm assuming it's like a single static program. And I'm wondering about uh, if you have any thoughts on kind of the generalizability or the the ability of the, you know, either of these approaches you tried uh, to Mm -hmm. generalize, um, you know, given it, you know, it's, its training has all been on this one static AFL. Would you, would you, does AFL have mm. some like 
ability to generate random programs that you can test against, or is it just as one kind of set of code paths? So AFL is uh, an evaluation tool. So you run AFL against a target program. So we ah, okay. picked the Ethereum wallet in this case. Um, you can you so basically it's kind of like a compiler add-on. So you need to have access to the source code of whatever program you're testing. So you recompile in our case Ethereum wallet with AFL, and so that allows it to basically do introspection in the code to see if I've taken a unique code path and how long it is. Got it. And so um, it's that's that's the framework, how it's evaluating. Okay. And so the use case is, is you've got a specific piece of software that you're trying to attack yeah. as opposed to you're trying to generalize something that can attack any software. Uh, so we're not attacking the software. Uh, so this is a scenario where you have uh, a piece of software you've developed and you want to ensure that you've uh, gotten out all the bugs that you can identify. And this is a method of uh, doing a security assessment for that piece of software by inputting random byte strings to see if you can identify uh, other faults that could be occurring in the program that would cause it to crash. Things like buffer overflows or... Right, exactly. Right. In this case, I think you're primarily looking for things that are very low level um, that you might not get through a standard functional unit test, um, but that would be occurring at a memory level. You did this with GANs and then you also did LSTMs. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the approach there? We actually did not spend a lot of time optimizing uh, the particular frameworks. I think our LSTM um, was a very simple, uh, off-the-shelf um, kind of instantiation of one. Um, but we were still able to find uh, significant performance increases in terms of how fast it would um, produce new code paths when you augmented the the, um, the AFL framework. So we found that uh, when we were using the GANs that we were finding uh, code paths 11% faster and uh, the LSTM was only producing 8% faster over random. So the challenge is the longer you run this, um, you start have having found all of the interesting things and it takes much, much longer to find a new unique code path. And so the goal of this is to try and speed up that process. And so it sounds like small gains, but that could take um, a, you know, significant amount of time. Um, one of my co-authors on this uh, had more expertise and said that I believe that they may, for, for, for large programs, that you may be running these sorts of fuzz testing for months and years to try and identify faults. And so if you can get 11 or 8% speed up on finding some of those unique code paths, um, that that's highly beneficial to their work. Were these two projects that you worked on simultaneously or kind of uh, sequentially? I'm wondering if, you know, what, if you, you know, there were things you learned from one that you carried to the other or you know, vice versa. They were fairly independent projects. There's actually a third piece in this as well, um, which is the machine learning, the security of the machine learning component. Mm -hmm. um, so we also had another paper where we were looking at um, the physical security of models by projecting light onto scenes. So um, based on some of the things that we had seen before uh, in the general literature, we wanted to understand if you could separate uh, the adversarial piece from the benign object. So in the example of the turtle rifle paper, that turtle was inherently um, the object being created. And so when you had a uh, classifier classifying that object, it was always inherently um, 
going to produce the misclassification. And so we want to understand if those two components could be separate. And so we started exploring um, in this other piece of work, if you could uh, use projected light to impose the pattern that caused the misclassification. Back up a second. And ha- well, what are <laughs> yeah. the, I missed the two, I missed the distinction there. Which distinction? You've got the ground truth image or pattern or object, and then you've got some perturbation that is causing your classifier to misclassify. Is the feature of interest of this third experiment that, you know, as opposed to printing, you know, a picture and kind of perturbing the picture before printing it, you're, you've actually got a physical object and you're kind of, uh, you're perturbing it with light or is is there something else involved? So the the setup that we had was we had uh, we were looking at the CIFAR 10 data set because that's the um, uh, easy to instantiate with uh, kids' toys. So we had a plastic horse, we had a little toy airplane, uh, we had a little rubber frog, uh, we had a cat, and so we had each of the CIFAR 10 categories as physical objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we then had a camera pointed at this scene and a common projector as you'd use for a PowerPoint presentation. Um, And so in this kind of closed loop scene, we would use the projector to add light to the scene uh, and the camera to capture that scene. So we're looking specifically at uh, the physical security of a theoretically um, real world object recognition system. So obviously it's a closed and test environment and we're working with these Literally toy scenarios. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but and otherwise, so, got it. Yeah, um, but, and so are you Are you learning the patterns? Uh, uh, like, is there a closed loop between the projector mm-hmm. and kind of learning these patterns and evaluating the ability to, um, you know, their, their adversarial effectiveness? So that's what we want to do next. Uh, so what we were doing in some sense was understanding uh, the base model resilience. So what we did is we put this object in the scene and then we first verified that it was accurately recognizing our toy figurine as an actual horse. Um, and so it was, uh, we noticed a lot of variations. So for example, if you rotated it or had it closer or further from the camera, um, it had uh, significantly Uh, varying confidence that it was truly that object. So to try and ensure that when we added light, that it was actually um, any change in confidence of the model was due to our addition and not the variation in the scene, we positioned the object where it had the highest confidence that it was truly the object, and then we didn't touch it. And so then we had um, three baseline conditions. We had that baseline where we just had the object in scene being uh, captured. Uh, And we took 20 images of each and then took the average of that because, again, we noticed there was instability in how how accurately it was classifying, even if you weren't touching the scene. Um, And then we had the addition of basic white light. And then we had uh, what we called random squares, where the projector on the scene would project a single a square of colored light. Uh, so it was basically a white box and then, but one pixel was changed to have a color and it would randomly permute the location and color of that pixel onto the scene. And then we were also using um, a differential evolution approach where uh, you project the a pixel of different color in different locations. And then based on uh, the 
the particular pattern that had the most impact on reducing the confidence of the classifier, it would then uh, iterate to things around that so that it could produce um, something that might theoretically be a stronger um, attack against that particular scene. And so those were the three cases that we were comparing. Um, and so when we did that evaluation, there are 10 categories in CIFAR, and six of the 10 uh, had a substantial reduction in classification accuracy. Uh, I think it was between 64 and 66% reduction in classification accuracy with those different additions to the scene. Wow. You know, one of the things that strikes me as you paint this scenario is that uh, and it kind of goes back to this idea of these being, you know, toy problems, in this case, literal toy problems. Right. The, the, the models are so fragile out yes. of the box that, right. like, does it even make sense to try to attack them if you can, you know, turn I, the image, by, you know, I turn know. your object by a, a degree and the model stops working? I called this the paper tiger attack because I feel like... <laughs> I feel like this is true. And I forget the specific model we pulled off, but we were using, you know, one of the, the best pre-trained CIFAR 10 image classifiers for this. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of times I went back and I checked, I was like, what year was this published? Is this definitely the best? And I think that this is, this is why I'm very interested in the interplay between machine learning and the security of machine learning. Because if these are the best published models on these standardized data sets, and they don't function as we intend with simple changes in rotation and light addition, mm -hmm. uh, it's, not, it's not a robust system. And so I think that there is a growing increase in the community of understanding how can we make these more robust and resilient, but we're still lacking data sets that we can use to evaluate that performance. So when we're stuck to the same ImageNet and CIFAR 10 and MNIST and you know all the different uh, other applications that have specific standardized data sets, uh, we're limited to understanding the effectiveness in those scenarios, but those aren't necessarily the variations that you see in an actual environment. Really interesting and... You know, it's hard to argue that kind of machine learning and deep learning in particular, computer vision, all these technologies are, you know, kind of on this exponential adoption and maturity curve. And that, you know, this, you know, we need to start thinking about the security of these systems. <laughs> but then mm -hmm. when you're like kind of presented with how immature they are, it's maybe it's striking in a sense. I agree. <laughs> Um, I think that uh, there is a growing awareness of the need to provide this uh, assessment of robustness. Um, but I think that there, like I said, I think there needs to be an increase in the amount of standardized data sets that are able to assess some of that um, mm -hmm. and understand uh, the metrics needed to evaluate that performance. So mm -hmm. uh, I think I, I, I'm fascinated to see how this continues to mature because I think that... Um, I think that there is more awareness around that. Uh, on that last point, you made the the need to develop metrics. Um, are you hinting at a an insufficiency in just talking about this in terms of you know performance loss relative to a baseline? 
some of that. So there was um, a paper uh, that was looking at when you're quantifying the difference between two images, oftentimes in adversarial examples, there's this notion of is it perceptible or imperceptible difference? Mm -hmm. And you use uh, the L2 distance between these two images. And um, in this paper, they showed two images that looked exactly the same. And they said that, you know, one had a difference of 0 0.002 two and the other one had a difference of 0.1 and then they have another image where it's clearly very different it kind of has the same textural features but the actual shape is very different so if you do a simple pixel subtraction um it's quite different uh and that l2 distance was also 0.1 the the illustrative case there is that these images look very different but they have the same distance metric uh right. score l2 is an average and, so, and it's going to lose a lot of information right? and yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So we need to we need more nuanced uh, ways to describe all these scenarios. Right. Exactly. Well, it sounds like some really interesting work. I, I appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. You're welcome. Thanks. I, I'm very excited and uh, interested in this topic. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nicole. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.